morning. You'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to, uh, I almost said turn to hymn number, but <clears throat> ah, um, turn to Acts chapter 17. I am a creature of habit. So. <laughs> By way of review, and we won't review long, um, at the end of the previous chapter, Paul and Silas had been beaten and spent the night in jail in Philippi. And after being released and going to Lydia's house to encourage the new believers there, they departed from Philippi as requested by the magistrates in the city. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So they're traveling southwest. They go through Amphipolis and Apollonia. Apparently, they don't stop there, or if they do stop there, they probably didn't stop there very long in either place. These towns would have been, if you were traveling by horseback, we don't know how they were traveling, but if you were traveling by horseback, they would have been about a day's journey apart um, each one of them. So it's possible that they just stopped in those places, spent the night, and moved on. Luke doesn't mention that they took the time to stop or preach in either of those two cities. Perhaps that would be because these were smaller towns, and perhaps Paul's strategy was to reach the bigger locations and assume that the Christians, the believers, those who who believed the gospel as it was given to them in those larger metropolises would see to it that the word spread from there, the gospel spread. Keep your finger there in Acts and look just for a moment in First Thessalonians chapter 1. Verses 7 and 8. If, if that was Paul's strategy, apparently it worked. I'll start in verse 6. You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. So they took the word in the larger cities where, like Paul went, um, those people would have gone out perhaps to take the gospel elsewhere, Otherwise, people from those smaller towns would have come into the bigger cities at times, and they would have heard the gospel there and taken it back to their own. Uh, but it, if that's what Paul's strategy was, it worked, because they were the ones in Thessalonica definitely spread the gospel. It's also possible that he skipped those two towns because they didn't have synagogues, we don't know for certain whether they had synagogues. 
But Luke does make a point in verse 1 of telling us they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. That was where Paul typically went first when he got to a new city. Macedonia, I'm sorry, Thessalonica was the capital city of Macedonia and it would have had approximately 200,000 residents at the time. It was on a main trade route, so lots of people were coming through all the time, going other places, and stopping there at times. And as Luke notes, it had a Jewish synagogue, and that would meet both of the prerequisites. It was a large city, and it had a synagogue. Verse 2, then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, that is, into the synagogue of the Jews, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. I'm going to turn to Romans chapter 10 just for a moment. Paul's custom was to go first to the Jewish synagogues, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10 what his heart was. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to anyone who believes. Paul had a deep desire to reach his own relations, his own countrymen, the Jews. That would be the first place he went when he reached a new town. His time with the Jews in Thessalonica only lasted three Sabbaths. Luke doesn't tell us here what Paul did with the rest of the week. He just tells us that Paul spoke on the the Sabbaths. So we can surmise from 1 Thessalonians again. Anytime we turn somewhere else, keep a finger stuck in uh, Acts 17. 1 Thessalonians 2.9 He's talking to the the people there. He says, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preached to you the gospel of God. Well, he preached, but he also worked. Second Thessalonians chapter three, verses eight and nine. Starting verse seven. You yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. So 
Paul's traveling, he's preaching, he's also working with his own hands to provide food and whatever is necessary for himself and Silas and Timothy who are traveling with him. He was with the Jews for three Sabbaths. How did he spend that time with them in the synagogue? Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. So, four words that are used there. Reasoned. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. According to Wearsby, that's to dialogue back and forth by asking questions and answering questions. So, I ask you questions, you answer. You ask me questions, I answer, and we go back and forth. Explaining or opening the scriptures thoroughly to them. Explaining what does the scripture say and what does it mean? Demonstrating or alleging, as it says in the King James, to lay alongside, alleging, laying alongside. To prove by presenting evidence. So Paul would take them to the Old Testament scriptures and show them from the Old Testament what the Old Testament said about the coming Messiah. What Paul shows them from the New Testament, what he explains and demonstrates, is that Christ had to suffer, that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. He shows them that from the Old Testament, that those things were necessary. And then, my understanding, he would have been building that case the first couple of weeks, the first couple of Saturdays, Sabbaths, and on the third Sabbath, he gets to the point where he draws the line and he says, what I have been showing you from the proves that Jesus from the scriptures proves that Jesus Christ fits the bill for the Messiah. Therefore, he is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. Draws the line in the sand, basically, and says, now you've got a choice to make. Step over and join us Stay where you are. That's the last thing, where he preaches and proclaims. He says, shown you the truth, now let me proclaim it clearly. Jesus Christ is the one. Some, but not all of them, were persuaded. Verse 4 
And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. The ones who joined Paul and Silas at that point basically are out of the synagogue because verse 5 the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. We don't know how long after, after this third Sabbath. We don't know whether this happens immediately, the next verse, or whether those who believed withdrew from the from the synagogue and Paul continued to teach them for a long time or whether they were only there for three weeks. Um, We do know that they were there long enough that the church in Philippi, where he had been before, had time to send care packages twice. I'll read that. From Philippians chapter 4. When Paul wrote back to the church in Philippi, where he had been beaten and jailed, it would help if I looked at my notes to see what verse I'm looking for. 4, 15, and 16. Um, Now you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent to you sent aid once and again for my necessities. So, we know that they were there for a little while, long enough for the Philippians to send aid twice. The Jews who were not persuaded became envious of Paul's success. After all, he had taken away, quote, a great many of their converts. So they decided to take revenge. All right, these Greeks would have been non-Jews who had been converted, proselytized to join there in the synagogue to join the the Jewish religion. And a lot of those were persuaded by Paul's teaching. So they collect some 'er ne'er-do-wells from the the marketplace. Don't know if they picked them up, hired them in the marketplace, said, hey, you want a job? I got something for you. Stir up some trouble. Or if they just found some people who liked to stir up trouble and said, hey, how about over there? Um, They went to the house of Jason where they thought that the apostles would be and they wanted to drag them out and turn them over to the public. See what would happen. They stirred them up into a frenzy by that point. Paul's goal in 
least part of Paul's goal in reaching Gentiles, was he hoped that the salvation of the Gentiles would provoke the Jews into studying the scriptures and discovering their promised Messiah. He wanted them to see Gentiles being saved and to be envious and to look at their own scriptures and find Jesus. Turn to him. You can find that that, that was Paul's goal in uh, Romans 11, 13, and 14. But in this case, it didn't provoke them to study the scriptures more. It provoked them to anger. It was fairly common. Um, so they decided to persecute the infant church. Verse 6, But when they did not find them at the house of Jason... They dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. When they didn't find the missionaries, they dragged them out, dragged Jason out and some other brethren. They took them to the, the rulers of the city. It's an interesting word that they use there. It's in the Greek, politarchs. Um, and the politarchs means exactly rulers of the city. But that would be a different word than was used back in Philippi when they were hauled before the magistrates. In Philippi, which was a Roman colony, they would have been like military rulers, military uh, police that they dragged them in front of. Here, it's a free city. And so they were, uh, were allowed to elect their own representatives to govern them. The fact that Luke uses different words for the different cities helps to show that Luke was authentic in his writing, that he was there, he knew things. He was accurate in what he said. The leaders of the mob blame the disturbance on Paul and his friends. And since they couldn't get the missionaries themselves, they accused Jason of harboring them. And they said, these guys were breaking Roman law by proclaiming another king rather than Caesar. There's a couple of words for another. One is another of the same kind. One is another of a different kind. And one is a king of a different kind rather than Caesar named Jesus. It's ironic that the Jews who want nothing more than they wanted for the Messiah to come and overthrow the Romans and set up a Jewish kingdom, a Jewish empire, would choose to make this particular accusation against the very Messiah that they claimed that they had been waiting for, Jesus, They refused to recognize him. 
he was not the Messiah that they were looking for. So despite Paul's reasoning and explanations and proclamation, they turned their backs on their true Messiah and accused him of being against Rome. They were also against. Verse 8. They troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. Even though they were a free city, they knew good and well that they only had their freedom, their liberty, at the whim of the Roman Empire, which would have been personified in the emperor. Well, the accusation of treason against Rome put some fear into them. They're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, treason against Rome, treason against the Caesar. We can get in a lot of trouble for this. We might lose our freedom. Well, they get nervous. When they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. They did not have Paul and Silas and Timothy in custody. Well, they couldn't bring charges against them but they made Jason and the other brethren pay bail, get out. We don't know exactly what that was. Uh, Presumably, it would have been something that they they held over their heads and said, if these guys continue stirring up trouble, if your friends keep stirring up trouble in this city, or if you're ever seen with them again, you're going to lose whatever it was that they put up for bail. Some people think that that's what Paul was referring to when he wrote back in 1 Thessalonians and said, oftentimes I wanted to come back and visit you again, but Satan hindered me. Um, They think that that's what he was referring to, that this bail that was being held over the, the Thessalonians' head Um, couldn't go back without causing them more grief, more trouble. So, verse 10. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. What do they do when they get to Berea? When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of Jews. Paul didn't change what his plan was just because he had had trouble with the Jews in the last city. He goes straight to the Jews when he gets to the new city. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So these these people who are receiving the word here and searching the scriptures daily to see whether these things be so, this would be the Jews in the synagogue, primarily. Because, believe it or not, back at that time, you could not walk into the local um, Berean Bible bookstore and pick up a copy of the Old Testament. They didn't have it. 
The only place that would have had the scrolls for the Old Testament would have been at the synagogue. And they might have had a, a limited assortment. These people, when they heard, they readily received it. They listened before they made up their minds. What Paul and Silas were teaching them was not what they had always heard or what they had always believed. They were looking for a Messiah who was going to ride in on a white horse and make them the rulers, make, give them an empire. Um, something new was being presented to them. Wait a minute. The Messiah is, was supposed to suffer? The, the Messiah was supposed to die? The Messiah was supposed to rise from the dead? And they would hear these things and they would go back to the Scriptures. They would go back to the scrolls and look, search out and figure, is what these guys telling us true? Just because it was new, they didn't reject it out of hand. They listened carefully and then they went back to what they knew was Scripture, what they knew was the Word of God, and they searched it out and said, is it true or is it not? They wanted to know, is this new teaching in line with what God passed down through his prophets? They weren't going to fall for something new just because it was new, but neither were they going to reject it out of hand just because it was new. It's not what I always heard, but I'm still going to listen to it and figure it out. What's the result? Therefore, having studied the scriptures, gone back through them. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. By the way, both of these cities that talk about women as well as men, in a lot of the Roman Empire at this time, women were just considered property or you know, whatever. They, they didn't have a say in anything. But here in Macedonia... They did. There were prominent women like Lydia back in Philippi, and she was a business owner. Um, they had opportunity to be leaders. Leaders. Listening, paying attention, and then taking what you hear back to Scripture and checking it out leads to correct understanding, correct belief, and acceptance of truth. I think it's interesting that there are a lot of churches in the United States and presumably other places who take the name Berean Bible Chapel, Berean Bible Church, Berean Baptist Church, Berean. We look back at 
Berea, and that is a goal to be attained. To, to say, we put that, some people put that name on their church because they want to, to convey that we are a church that believes in checking out with the scriptures, holding to the scriptures, listening to the scriptures. And I hope it's our goal, even though we don't have that name on, on our building, I hope that it's our goal that we would be like them to hear teaching and compare it with what we know of the Scriptures. And compare it to make sure that what we think we know of the Scripture is actually the case. They thought they knew what the Messiah was going to be like. And when they're hearing that, wait a minute, that's not what the Messiah will be like, they went back to the Scriptures and looked again. The Apostle Paul in Galatians makes it very clear that no change should ever be allowed in the clear teaching of the gospel. There's no deviation from the teaching of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If anybody comes and tries to challenge that belief, which by the way, salvation through faith by grace alone, through faith alone, was true in the Old Testament as well. They weren't saved by works back in the Old Testament. They were saved by grace in the Old Testament. They were saved by faith in the Old Testament. And yes, they did follow what they were told to do as far as the sacrifices and things like that, but it was a picture of what was coming, a picture of the Christ who was coming. If somebody comes to us preaching a different gospel, we are to reject that person out of hand. We don't give them an ear. We don't give them a welcome. In other things, there's a lot more leeway. Think of things like prophecy, interpretation of prophecy. Two people can read the same passage and understand them differently. And it doesn't mean that we run the one off because that's not what I've thought before. Listen. Before you speak, listen. Ask questions. And go back to Scripture and say, what does Scripture say? Does this make sense scripturally? The prophecies concerning Christ's first coming were greatly misunderstood by the Jews. By most of them, if not all of them, they didn't see how Christ was coming first time. Even the 12 disciples after spending three years with Jesus did not understand about the crucifixion. Even though he tried to tell them plainly about the crucifixion coming up, they missed it. 
They didn't understand about the resurrection after the crucifixion. And they didn't believe it when they heard that it had happened. Right up until after the resurrection, when they knew that he had risen from the dead, they still thought that he was going to set up an earthly kingdom right now. And they were still asking him um, on the way to him being taken up into heaven. Lord, is it now that you're going to set up the kingdom? But what makes us think that we've got all the answers about his second coming? Is he coming? Absolutely. Without a doubt, he is coming. But precisely what order things are going to happen in and whether or not there is anything left that has to happen first, the matter that honest Christians read the scriptures differently on. We should respectfully listen with the understanding that we may not have all the answers and continue to search the scriptures with open minds and hearts. The surest way to stop learning, as I see it, the surest way to stop learning is to decide that you already know everything. Honest, respectful debate is a way for both sides to teach and to learn. Iron sharpens iron. Verse 12, Therefore many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks and prominent women as well as men. 13, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. You in opposition, these guys back from Thessalonica hear that Paul is preaching again. He's teaching the same things he taught here. We're not going to put up with that. We're going to go down there and straighten this out. So they go down there to stir up trouble. Verse 14. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. We're not told exactly why they sent Paul away. Was it for his protection? Or was it for their protection? Are we going to get him out of here before we get in trouble? Um, we don't know. Paul was certainly the lightning rod. Silas and Timothy were allowed to stay there, but it was Paul that the Thessalonians were after. Only Paul was sent away. Verse 15, So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So the ones who were tasked with taking Paul and seeing him safely away from Berea, they took him as far as Athens, and then Paul gave them a command uh, for Silas and Timothy to come join him in Athens, and they left and went to deliver that message. 
And you don't hear anything else about the church in Berea. It's not mentioned in Revelation. It's not mentioned. The only one time that you hear anything about Berea after that is in chapter 20 of Acts, where Sopater of Berea accompanied Paul into Asia. I find it peculiar that God didn't leave us any record of Paul sending them letters um, or visiting them again at a later date. I would, I would love to know what Paul had to say to the Berean church. Like we, we have things from Corinth and Philippi and Colossae, other places. So, At this time, now, if you went to town of uh, Saloniki in Greece, which is old Thessalonica, the, the prominent religion there is Catholicism, or the prominent Christian religion at least is Catholicism, Eastern, Eastern Orthodox, which is a, a branch of Catholicism. Same thing with Berea. Both of them are Eastern Orthodox primarily. So, we've got time for a few things we can learn from this passage. One, Paul persevered. He was not discouraged. Even though he was beaten and imprisoned in Philippi, it didn't stop him from continuing to take the gospel to other cities. He went on. Apollonius and Amphipolis. If he skipped those two towns because he was focusing on the larger populations and expecting the believers from those places to take the word to smaller places around them, we could take that and apply it and say, okay, when we send out missionaries, we should tell them to take the same approach. Hit the big places and let them spread out. and tell it. Or we could say, all right, Paul apparently assumed that believers would be giving out the gospel, but when I go someplace, they should take it out. Are we taking the gospel out to the people around us? We've received it. We should be taking it to the people around us. Paul appeared to think that it was normal behavior for believers to share the gospel. Paul's approach to evangelism. Ask questions. Listen to the answers. Allow others to ask us questions. Use scripture as the authority, not just opinion or beliefs. Explain Scripture clearly and present the evidence for who Christ is. Make the logical case and proclaim Jesus as the only one who can fill what's talked about in Scripture. Next, expect opposition. Not everyone will believe, and those who don't believe will be antagonistic to the gospel and to our efforts to share it. So when you take the gospel, expect opposition. Don't get discouraged. 
by opposition. They run you out of one place, take it to the next. Continue to work and trust God to produce the fruit as he sees fit. And last, again, continue to be students of the word without thinking that we have all the answers. In Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church, he wrote a lot about the second coming. When he wrote the second letter, he still had to deal with some of the same things. It's understandable that honest, genuine believers like the people in Thessalonica were may still read the same scriptures and come to different conclusions and Paul's patience with his readers is indicative that we must also be patient with others and continue to search the scriptures not only for things to back up our own arguments, for our own beliefs, but search the scriptures for things on which we ourselves may be mistaken. May we all be careful, diligent students of the Word of God. Father, we come. Thank you for your Word. Thank you for these people who heard it and believed both of these cities. Thank you for the lessons that we see in Paul's life. He was an example to the believers. But he's an example to us. We ask that you would help us to continually be in your word, searching it carefully, seeing where we're mistaken, seeing how to sharpen one another. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be willing to ask questions, be willing to listen for the answers. In the name of Jesus, we pray.